VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. Now, you may be wondering, what's going on? I want a Gab and Natalie, not one or the other. I want both. And you're right. You can have it all. Uh, however, Natalie's entitled to her holiday time, and sometimes I'm not here, and sometimes she's not there. And I'm not going to be here on Thursday either. I'll be in Monaco for the Champions League draw, so you'll have Natalie all to yourself. But hopefully, and I want to get ahead of myself... Hopefully, a week from today, we will both be here, both in the studio. So start getting excited for that. Incidentally, our Predictions League is ongoing. And I'll tell you what, I won't reveal who's ahead. Allison, yes, that's right. Allison Rudd joins us today. But it's a wafer-thin margin. I'm trembling with excitement. Or I always think back to the Monty Python film, wafer-thin. Anyway, (laughs) joining us later from uh, uh, the Sunday Times, it's everybody's second favorite shaven-headed Scottish football journalist. It's Jonathan Northcroft. The other one, in case you're wondering, lives in South Africa. And this is awesome because it's my second Duncan Castles reference, two weeks running. That's that's pretty good. Lots to discuss this week, including Roman Abramovich and Michael Owen. But we start with a congested German. <laughs> Allison, so Arsenal play West Ham, and it's one of those stories which kind of sort of there's a story before the story. Because can you just describe it? You you were there. Just tell us about your day. Because <laughs> I'm assuming on your way over, you heard, "Oh look!" Or when the lineups came out, you heard, "Oh look, Ozil isn't in." the squad for the day. Goodness me, what must have happened? Yes, and rumours were flying that there had been a, open quotes, training ground bust-up, close quotes. and that Rumours, I might add, reporting by uh, João Costello Branco, who is uh, um, who works for ESPN uh, Brazil, and who, I believe, stands by his story, that he there was a bust-up, and then when Ozil later, which may or may not have been related to the fact that Ozil later found out he wasn't starting... And then he suddenly got ill. So that's his version of events. But take it from there, because that might not correspond to reality. Yeah, well, what, you, what you have is a, um, a main press conference in which that question is asked. Can you explain to the man that the manager is asked, Emery's asked, was there a training ground burst up? And he says, no, 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 absolutely not. He's not well. He has Qatar, which is being bunged up, Qatar. But then that raised more questions. So when the journalists who write for the Monday papers got into the little padded cell that they have at the Emirates for such discussions, uh, we asked, well, we pointed out this was slightly peculiar if you have a player who is unwell with something that sounds like um, a cold or a virus. Why did you ask him to 
come to the ground on the day of the match. And in fact, he spent an hour in the dressing room with the players before the game, which doesn't seem a logical thing to do for someone who's been bunged up. He might spread gems. Maybe he was hoping to inoculate them and build up the team's immunity. He didn't give that as the reason, strangely enough. Um, and as the added little little quirk that, that Arsenal have opened up their new training medical facility that they were showing off to a few journalists, which has lots of signs everywhere saying, you know, beware germs, do not shake hands, stuff like this. So it seemed counterintuitive to have a player with um, possibly a cold, something worse, mingling with your players. So first of all, Emery said, well, if my other players become ill, that's on me, which uh, he didn't actually say don't worry, he's not really ill, but it kind of implies that, doesn't it? He sort of smilingly said, you know, if, the, if people get ill, you know, it's my fault, it's my fault. He doesn't, he doesn't really expect there to be an illness-spreading issue here, which does raise doubts as to how unwell Ursel is and whether it's a convenient illness because he didn't like the way he was treated or spoken to at training on Thursday. And then Emery decided he would go into more detail, which again was interesting, and he gave us a timeline, which was that the illness happened at the same time as he started to discuss maybe tactically changing the way Ozil played. Emery didn't say, I was going to drop him. He didn't say that. But he did indicate he was perhaps thinking of dropping him from playing number 10 or just using him in a different way or asking him to do more. That was the implication. Sorry if I jump in. Did he actually say he started getting sick when I discussed his new role, which might involve him... Being well, clearly I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say that. I'll tell you exactly what he said. He said, two days ago, I spoke with him about things tactically for this match and the last match. And he said to me he was sick two days ago. Yesterday, Friday, after my conversation on Thursday, he continued to stay off sick. We spoke with the doctor and decided it was better for him to stay at home than if today, if he was feeling better, he should come. So the fact that he says, two days ago, I spoke to him tactically about things tactically, and two days ago he said he was sick. I mean, you know, if you want to push it, you could say that's throwing him under the bus a bit. He's not, yeah, really, he's not, he's not well, really giving us this... He's not really spreading the idea that, that his player was genuine, genuinely ill. He's, he's, he's allowing us to know that his player, Ozil, felt unwell at roughly the same time he was being told... You might not be okay. playing number 10. So I'll explain why this is relevant or maybe not relevant for those who don't know how the reporting process works. Um, now, there are some managers who like sort of speaking in riddles and dropping hints between the lines. Um, and they do this all the time. We can all imagine who they are. There are other managers who are kind of, you know, plain vanilla when they speak and they just kind of give you a sequence of events. I don't I mean Emery hasn't been in this country long enough, I think, to build up a relationship with the media where it's easy for the media to say, "Oh yeah, Emery's throwing him under the bus," the way Allison said because otherwise he wouldn't suggested, have suggested the way Allison suggested. The way Allison suggested be. uh because otherwise he wouldn't have used that language and that sequence or he may just kind of, you know, slightly robotically saying like this is the timeline of what happened and you know, there's no connection between the two, or, or I see no connection between the two. Now, this is a bit of a communication problem because it's not really clear, right? No, I would, I would, I, I, I agree completely. Of course, you you can read that to mean simply it's somebody just being honest and explaining what happened. But right. the fact that he invited the player 
into the dressing room for an hour. That and the timeline implies that he really, really doesn't sound like he's so ill he couldn't play. Okay, now, I know for a fact football clubs employ comms people who then go and clarify things and brief journalists and say, look, this is what he said. Just for the avoidance of doubt, this is what he meant. Did anybody come and say, listen, you guys might be getting the wrong spin here, but, you know, he was just giving you the facts. He's not... There's nothing to read between the lines there? Did that no, happen? No, the only interjection was um, there was some concern that the journalists were assuming that Ozil had a virus, which made it sound like he was very ill and therefore might have infected the whole squad and that they'd have to abandon the game against Cardiff. His demeanour is is very impressive. He was He was very calm and smiley and polite and gave the impression of really trying to help and clarify what had happened. He, he wasn't. He wasn't. Nobody figured out. I didn't. It didn't feel like he was nasty playing tabloids games. Tabloids and those nasty gutter reporters might go and take this the wrong way. And I want to move it on to to Ozil himself because Henry Winter, a, a colleague, and, and I haven't actually read the column yet, but I have an idea. What's, he's going to be writing about this, and he's going to point out that we should be careful not to rush to judgment on Mr. Ozil because he's been through a ton in the last three or four months. This is where we become unkind and say, like, yeah, one thing he's been through is that he signed a new contract, making him the highest paid player in the history of Arsenal. No, but obviously he had the absolute nightmare at the World Cup with Germany when they got bounced out in the group stage. He had the whole business with, uh, with Erdogan, uh, where, you know, he met with him. A lot of people in Germany felt that was inappropriate. He, he defended it, and talking about his legitimately, I think, his, um, the fact that his heritage is, 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 is Turkish, but he's German and... You know, increasingly, that's not really a novel thing in in, in the modern world. Um, and then he also got a ton of abuse online. I think his uh, his attachment to Germany got uh, and, and and to sort of his loyalty to the country was questioned, and, and that's all very hurtful. And that you know we don't know what's going on with his head, and there's a lot weighing on him. Um, some Arsenal fans speculating that maybe he's just stressed. I. How should we approach these situations from a media perspective? Should we just start making a big deal out of it and just take Emery at face value? I think it's reasonable to to just list what you've listed as to why his state of mind not, might not be in the best place. But for as long as they're putting out that he had Qatar and not that he was depressed, then you can't you can't but speculate that that's why depression. he missed the game. Okay, I know. But I know we've made strides in terms of the way we view mental health issues and depression. You know, a lot of people have been very open about this, thing you know, Danny Rose. But could that also be a way of protecting him? Because if they come out and say, oh, Ozil is depressed, you're going to have, you know, the usual, you know, wallies in, in the media going out like, oh, what's he depressed about? He's so rich. He's depressed counting his money in his World Cup. And uh, that is kind of the stupid knee-jerk reaction that we sometimes get in some quarters. Uh, some footballers to this day aren't comfortable in, in admitting to things like depression and insecurity, right? Yeah. But we can't force but, them to do it. But equally, we can't we can't decide that's what's going on here without any briefing or off-the-record briefing to guide us in that direction. Now, this season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every single goal from every single game in the Premier League. And guess what? It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Now, there's a big story in our sister paper, The uh, uh, the Sunday Times, uh, that you might have seen. Um, 
basically the, the, the story makes a point that Roman Abramovich is now actively uh, planning uh, to sell a Chelsea football club. Um, part of it is he's he's retained the services of uh, of a group called Rain, um, which is uh, Rain is kind of the new the new specter. It's a bunch of uh, Bond villains, actually. Um, no, no, just kidding. Uh, Rain advises people in M and A's, basically, and um, among other things. And they were involved in the uh, sale of a minority stake of Manchester City to the Chinese consortium um, that you may recall a few years ago. And joining us to talk about it is is Jonathan Northcroft. Johnny, is this kind of Abramovich saying, "Hey, look, let me just put this out because in case somebody wants to come along and give me a lot of money, I'll be ready." Yeah, actually, Gab, I think that, that, that might be a fair reading of it, um, because one of the significant things from our business team's point of view who, who, who produced the story was that when they went to Chelsea, they didn't get a denial, they, 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 they didn't even get a response, and then I think since publishing the story, there's been very little response, uh, no on-the-record denials from Chelsea at all, and the, you know, there hasn't been a response to the paper, and I think you, you kind of experience business reporters take that as, 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 a, as a sort of tacit signal that at the very least, it's not a story that the person you've written about is unhappy to see in the public domain. So if they are searching for interest to, to buy the whole club or a stake in the club, a story like that, I guess, doesn't do them any harm whatsoever um, because it, 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 it sort of floats the idea of selling and, and it sees what interest there is out there. I think I think the... The significant details that were in the story were the that of the Rain Investment Bank that had been hired to sort of drum up a sale or a sale of a stake or, or whatever, and the fact that uh, Silver Lake Partners, um, who are quite significant private equity firm, had had tried to buy a bit of Chelsea, had been rebuffed, but but had been in, in dialogue with the club, which I think suggests that there's there's um, a feeling that that, that Chelsea's viable, but. You know, I think club takeovers or club sales are, are even more opaque than, than, than big transfers, in my experience. And I wouldn't expect Chelsea to do much on the record about this. Are, are, I, think, I think I have to point out that a club source hmm. said and wanted it to be known to to hmm. to pet the papers that the club is not for sale. They, they, yes. They've made that clear. I think we have well, to they, say they, that. They have, they have, Ali, but they, they, what they didn't want to do was, was on the record say that. You know, so there are degrees of denial, I think. But yeah, take the point. I take the point. This idea that that Abramovich wants to sell again. For those who don't know the background story, he's owned the club since two thousand and three. There's several things pointing in that direction, right? I, I suppose. So one is Chelsea were supposed to build this giant sixty thousand seat stadium. Um, that project has been, and is it officially abandoned or simply in perpetual hold now? No, I, I mean, in fact, I think the the Mail have got a story today that you know it's very, very vague, but but it says that um, that, that you know Chelsea staff have been told that that, that work's going to restart on it. Although actually, there's not, you know nothing's actually been built, but uh, planning work um, is is, is going to restart, whatever that means. So I think Chelsea are still trying to put out that that there is. You know, there is a project. Uh, I suppose uh, a big thing in these is getting sort of planning, especially in that part of London, getting planning permission, getting the architect. I mean, they have the design, they have everything. They just haven't started building the darn thing. So that, I suppose, is value uh, in and of itself. The other big factor, of course, is the relationship between the British government and the Russian government. Again, for those who don't know, Roman uh, Abramovich is Russian. He also has an Israeli 
passport uh, for Russians to work in the United Kingdom. You need some sort of visa. He had a visa and a work permit that allowed him to work here. And that was revoked. I don't know if anybody said this, but there's always a lot of suggestions that it has to do with uh, the tensions between uh, between Russia and uh, the United Kingdom and the poisoning of the um, of the Russian dissident with Russia having been having been accused of being involved. Long story short, this guy does not get his work permit renewed. He can still visit the country with his Israeli passport, but he's not allowed to work here. So the thinking is that all these factors put together make him say, oh, you know what? I've had a good run with Chelsea. The club's worth a lot more than the 140 million plus debt that I paid to, to go and buy it. Let me just sell and go do something else with my time. Um, and in fact, we have a story on, on the back page today, Matt Hughes again saying that Abramovich would really only consider selling if he was offered an enormous sum. He's talking two and a half billion pounds, which off the top of my head is about three times as much as the most expensive sale ever. So, I mean, that, that, but that's actually saying it's for sale, isn't it, really? You know, it, it, it's not for well, sale, but it would, it would be at a big price. I think there is a sense that Chelsea are at a, uh, at a sort of turning point or a watershed moment. Part of that is the stadium, because if it's Abramovich or someone else that's going to take over that project, it's, it's going to cost at least a billion. You know, that's at the outset, and, and uh, in everyone's experience, stadiums tend to end up costing, you know, one and a half or double what, what you think they're going to cost. So at least a billion, going to take five years. You're looking at, you know, Manchester City are about to celebrate their 10th anniversary of Abu Dhabi ownership. The, the, the money stream does not seem to have any sign of, of stopping there. Um, you know, they're, they're only part of the way on, on a journey that you can see them on to become at the centre of this cluster of worldwide clubs, the most powerful thing in football. Manchester United, their share price is at an all-time high. They've never been more valued in the market. They maybe aren't doing brilliantly on the pitch, but they're still spending a huge amount of money on wages, on, on, on transfers. You've got Liverpool, who they've broken two transfer records this season. Um, they might not quite have the same amount of money, but they're very, very smart with how they, how they use it. And, and then you've got what's happening in Europe with the, the powerhouse clubs there. So there is a sense that how are Chelsea going to compete and, and, and stay Chelsea, as it were, stay one of the, the major players in Europe? Against this backdrop, you've even got Spurs building a new stadium. So even within London, there's a challenge to them. So whether it is Abramovich or someone else, that there's going to have to be uh, another sort of round of, of, of a pretty huge investment, I would, I would suggest, to keep Chelsea where they've been for the last 10 years. And this is a guy that's already put a billion pounds into, into his football club. At the very least, He's looking for investment, we now know. He's hired rain. And uh, as you suggest, if, if somebody wants to give him £2.5 billion, pounds, which is what, a profit of £2 billion at least, nobody knows what Abramovich thinks, but logically there's a lot of reasons why he would sell. Now, Chelsea played Newcastle on, on Sunday. They won away 2-1. It's three wins um, from three for, for Chelsea. Uh, Newcastle set up uber defensively and there's a strong argument to be made that you know John Joe Shelby and LaSalle's and a bunch of other guys weren't there and you know he really had no uh he really had no option to 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 go and do that and poor Rafa and Mike Ashley so mean and whatever um by the same token Maurizio Sarri who obviously replaced Rafa at Napoli he said it's weird I, I I'd never seen him go and play like this in Italy although I think people over here have seen know that Rafa can go uber defensive um just conceptually, is this the right 
way to play in the sense that it strikes me that if you line up like that and you go a goal down, then it wasn't a case here, but you're generally toast at that point. To convince the team that they should play five at the back and get that many people behind the ball and to have poor old Rondon trying to feed off scraps that he never quite got to but kept trying, 95% of the time it was very disciplined performance. That is not easy. I know he's doing it because he's, in a way, he's scared of the threat of Chelsea that, you know, if you've got Eden Hazard in a team, you've got to think they're better than us. They're just, we've just got to play to what, what we can do here. But to, to convince a team that they should play like that at home and have that level of concentration for most of the game. Although there were lots of stories in the build-up to the kickoff that he'd fallen out with several players, which were all been denied and players left out are, are apparently injured and not in a strop. What you manage to get out of those players proves that there is respect from them to their manager. This was not done unwillingly. And there were no boos. It got very, very quiet. There was no jeering. I think, I think that there's a, there's a degree of bravery and indeed talent, <laughs> although it's a strange one, to doing that. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This makes for actually for a good transition, Jonathan, since you were at the Wolves game um, when, when they hosted City. Um, because they also lined up, correct me if I'm wrong, with with sort of uh, uh, three center backs and, and sort of two, two full backs and whatever. But the difference is they had a lot of pace up front and they had two midfielders, which, you know, he doesn't have, like Moutinho, who may be older now, but obviously can still pass and is very experienced, and, and Neves, who's a very good player, who can provide some relief because when they win the ball back, they can actually keep it a little bit. They can be more incisive with their passing than, you know, certainly more so than, no disrespect, Key and and uh, and, and Yame, who were uh, who were Rafa's equivalents. Did Wolves deserve their point in in, in your opinion? Yeah, they, I, I thought they were terrific. And, and what they all, what they also did on top of that was they they applied a really fierce high press against City, um, as well as anyone I've seen do it outside of Liverpool. Actually, I mean they really which Newcastle uh, most definitely did not do. <laughs> they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And. I mean the, the the effort, the the determination of 
uh, Jota and uh, Helda Costa in, in the wide areas was was fantastic to play that. As, but as you say, um, Gab, one of the keys in doing that is having two absolutely superb midfielders who, when they do get the ball, to actually dictate the game and, and, and make the right passes to release people on the break. So they were very, very good at doing that. I thought they played very smart. They, they, they played in phases. There were long periods when, when City were, were ascendant, but they played in sort of 10, 15-minute bursts where they you know, almost sort of, you know, like in rowing, just went to went to sort of full speed, full stroke for, for 15 minutes and, and had had City under pressure. I thought they were really interesting tactically, some really interesting players. And, and Molyneux, you know, which just reminded you what a great place that is to watch football, what a, what a great atmosphere they can conjure there. Um, and I, I, I went away thinking... I already enjoy watching Manchester City and always look forward to them. But there's another team I'm now going to really look out for the fixtures and, and hope I get them because Wolves are going to be Wolves are going to be doing some great things on the pitch. But I think they'll be fine and I think they'll be really good to watch this year. Did you? I I I wasn't watching there. I was watching on telly at the Emirates and I felt it was a landmark moment and might actually dictate the way the season goes because Wolves showed that if you if you pick the right line to hold against City, yeah. you, yeah. I mean, he's, this is now the template. Gab spoke a lot last season about wh- where is the template to play against City and it was as if, other than Liverpool, nobody could quite work it out. And very early in the season, we have a team, they play deep but not so deep that they can't counter-attack. It's having the bravery to know what your strengths are, what that line is, so that when you do have the ability to counter you can really hurt them. And City seemed a bit flummoxed by that bravery I thought did you feel that but did John did you feel like this this might it's not just Wolves I'm impressed by this might mean City have a lot of trouble this season yeah I I, I, I felt exactly that, that 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 maybe you know we, we, it's one thing seeing Liverpool do it but seeing a let's say quote-unquote smaller team being able to do it might just set a trend but one thing Nuno Espirito Santo did say afterwards about the the, the, the press and the way they they applied it was you know, he said it takes a lot of practice to do that, and and he made the point that you know they're they're, they're working from nine till till five in training at Wolves. They do afternoon sessions as well, and, and and he did say it takes a lot of patience and a lot of work to get to this point. And he also said we're going to play like that against everybody. You know, we have an identity, and we're going to not just do it against City, which was which is also quite interesting. So I think you can do it against them, but the the, the work. That is required, and then probably the quality of midfielder as well to to really make it all sort of come together is maybe not something that everyone is able to do. Before we pronounce the death of City, maybe also <laughs> worth mentioning that. Correct me if I'm wrong. They did hit the woodwork twice. Yes, Jonathan yeah. Wolves's goal was a handball, and had the referee seen it, he would have disallowed it. Um, Why would he have disallowed it? Wasn't think- intentional. If a defender had thwacked a clearance against him and it gone in off his shoulder that would have been a goal not if it had gone in off his arm though it's not it's not actually illegal um no it, it it's is. not in the laws of the game maybe not in the laws of the game, it's not in the laws things, of the game. but maybe in the directives that that go with it and the explanation of the laws of the game which people publish if you accept it's completely accidental it's not it's not um it's not a foul it's, it's not a free I mean, kick no. therefore it's it, a goal it does, it does go back to the <clears throat> intentionality thing, doesn't it? I, I felt that as well, that, you know, it's hard to know whether it's deliberate or not, but I, I do think that 
having his arm in that position, you can't really get inside his mind and ask why his arm's there, stretched out like it like it was. But I think it's difficult to see refs allowing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's simple. You're, you, you gain an advantage, whether it's intentional or not. And look, I made this point last year with uh, the Ducore handball. I kind of find this kind of grotesque. I, I don't I don't think, I don't know if Ducore's was intentional or not. I, I don't know if this one was. But the point is, you're not allowed to score goals with your hand in football. You gain an unfair advantage um, from doing it. And just as last year, I said, you know what? I think we should create a climate where you expect Ducore to actually say, you know what? That ball came off my hand. Because he knows that the ball came off his hand, even though if nobody else did. In the same way, Bowley, presumably, knows that the ball came off his hand. But you're applying moral judgment. Gab, do you accept accept that if a defender made an absolute hash of a clearance from his goal line and it hit an onrushing centre-forward who was just running normally and it went in off his his bicep as he was running in and the ball went in the net, that the referee should disallow that? Yes. Why? It doesn't matter because you're not allowed to. It's, it's, it's called football for a reason. You're not allowed to the go ball, and score. The ball hits your arms all the time in football. Every time that happens, it's not a foul or a free kick. I'm not suggesting a, it's a foul. I'm just saying you can't score that way. You should not be able to score that way. It's pretty nailed on. Well, that is, that is your interpretation of modern football. That is not written in the laws anywhere. If you score a goal with your arm and you know that the ball came off your arm, whether it was intentional or, or accidental, you should say the ball hit my arm because everybody can see that the ball hit your arm. And if people don't do that, and obviously they shouldn't do it in Bowley's case because that's a different situation, but going forward, you should just say, look, if this happens and you don't say, look, the ball came off my my arm, then there should be a ban. I mean, I, I, I think... <laughs> I, I don't see what the, what there is to, 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 to go and to go and debate about this. Well, the, the, the debate is there needs to be... Then we don't need to, to worry to about whether it's intentional. Any, any ball crossing the line because it hit an arm is, is, is disallowed. You gain an advantage. Before Wolfsons get all excited, I made the exact same point about Ducori last year. And incidentally, that decision, that unseen handball, ended up probably costing Mauricio Pellegrino his job and left Southampton in danger of going down to the end of the season. So these, these decisions do end up having consequences. And we'll move on now to, to Michael Owen, um, because sometimes you get those moments of, of great TV that get shared virally. Um, he was speaking on, uh, on Premier League Tonight on, on BT Sport on, uh, on Saturday. And for those who are too young to know, Michael Owen was a sensation at 17 and 18 for, for Liverpool, was very prolific, uh, then went to Real Madrid, then came back, and then his career took a really downwards turn and he he attracted uh, a lot of criticism and he had this to say about how injuries affected him later on mentally i you know mm. I, I could do it but physically it's just horrible to still want to do it oh. but just your body just simply doesn't let you and you know what's even worse is that i, I explained how it felt when someone like Macca got the ball and my immediate reaction is do this and then split second is no you can't just go short the worst thing is you then get into a, a rut whereby you don't even put yourself in a position to be able to run. So you actually then go and stand in areas where you shouldn't even be. Alan Shear retreated this, and as you can imagine, Alan Shear not a fan and then, of this attitude. And there's also a lot of Newcastle fans upset by this because he's basically saying that 
you know, he effectively hid later in his career. What I find surprising is that you would think that if you work and you train with somebody every day and you've got, you know, sports psychologists there and coaches and medical staff and, you know, Owen also sort of argues about how because his hamstring had snapped earlier, there was some kind of imbalance and whatever else, that people would know this and say, look, this guy clearly can't play. His head isn't right. He's not doing what we ask of him. I mean, by his own admission there, he was never playing on the shoulder because if he did that, then people would expect him to sprint. How does it get to this? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I I feel close to this because I was the first person to interview Michael Owen in this country, ever. First, first newspaper interview with Michael Owen. And he was... Okay, he was young, but he was excited and he spoke in a certain way. Just so excited to be at Liverpool and, you, you know, sometimes you speak to someone, the joy of their life is just evident in the way they speak. And then the next time I spoke to him, he'd had a couple of problems with his hamstring and I feel terrible now. And I said to him, do you feel scared every time you play? Is it a weight on your shoulder? Is it a niggle in the back of your head that oh my god my hamstring might go my hamstring might go and does that stop you giving it your full pelt on the football field and his eyes clouded over he was a completely different person no not at all not at all I'm tired of talking about my hamstring that is not you know that's not an issue doesn't cross my mind because you're you're talking guys about you know sports psychologists we're still talking about an era where people did not admit their fears and if you can't admit it's an issue, you can't, you can't redesign your game. So he was still trying to be the old Michael Owen. So he didn't ask for help. And whilst he was still OK as a footballer, people are lazy ultimately and they know what he could do. So every time he got signed, people assumed, ah, oh, well, here, he'll just, he'll be happy and he'll be the old Michael Owen. So there was, yeah, I think there was stupidity involved. I think there was laziness involved. involved. Laziness involved. But if the player is scared to come clean... I feel really sorry for him now because he, if he'd if he'd faced up to the implications of the hamstring issues earlier, he could have made himself a slightly different player. He could have learned new tricks rather than a, avoiding his old tricks, which is what he sounds like he was doing. I mean, it's I, a sad story. I, so, so first of all, I mean, I'm I'm extremely grateful to, to 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 Michael Owen for for being so brutally honest. And you can say it's easy to be honest now, but you know he still has an image. And certainly the reaction, especially from Newcastle fans, because you'll recall, and this is part of the reason why Alan Shearer took this so so personally, and I fully understand why he did, um, that was a season that Newcastle went down and he didn't play on the last day of the season. And there's a guy named Paul Ferris, who's a former Newcastle player who got injured uh, early on, then he became a physio, a physio at the club. Uh, somebody, I mean, I retweet. I think I retweeted this, but somebody sent me pages from from his book, which I was unfamiliar with, where he sort of describes, and obviously this is Ferris's version of events, him talking to to Michael Owen uh, before that final game, and saying, "Well, the scan shows you're fine," and Owen says, "No, no, I got a niggle. You know, I, I probably shouldn't play the last game of the season." And, and then, according to Ferris, again, this is Ferris's account in 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 his book. Owen says, well, you know, I'm out of contract. You know, I can't have a hamstring injury now. And Ferris saying, well, you have a contract and it's with us. And I don't know. I think it's one of those things where 
as a journalist, I'm very grateful for him being so honest. But by the same token, I don't think this is appropriate behavior from a professional while he was playing. By the same token, though, players will do what they get away with. And I wonder, uh, it just seems to me that there were so many people around him who were clearly enabling this. Because, you know, what he said, he said about like sort of the three hamstring muscles and one of them snaps and we have medicine, we, we have scans that can go and establish this. We have people who watch him every day, right? It, it, it's pretty simple. If he's saying, well, I was never going on the shoulder last defender so that, you know, people wouldn't notice that I wasn't, uh, that I wasn't sprinting, so I was sitting deeper and, and whatever. I, I just find it extraordinary that here he is, he's making an enormous amount of money, and again, with all the sympathy in the world for his condition, but then nobody picks up on it to the point that they feel the need to either put their foot down or to help him you know, all we get is this stuff at a distance. Oh, look, Owen's not himself anymore. And people were saying, like, we lost his love of the game and, and, and the horses and all this other nonsense. When, in fact, according to Owen, the reason was he just didn't want to get hurt again. I've read the whole of the Ferris book, and it's astonishing that that it's being tweeted out because what that book tells you is just how rubbish physios and analysis of players was during his time as a physio at the club he's a big big mate of alan shearer so he sees everything through the prism of that he loves the man it's a very good book by the way very very good book by the way but it it, it has an agenda and the, and, the, and the author adores alan shearer and, and wouldn't have a word said against his management or the way he handled things at the club and he went through a terrible time himself the author of that book with injuries being misdiagnosed and being told to get up off your feet and keep trying and that sort of thing and he says he eventually became a physio to try and help people. The irony of then feeling that Michael Owen was putting, you know, his his future contract ahead of the club is is ridiculous. This is, it's horrible when you earn your living from your body and your body doesn't do what you want it to do, but you've got a reputation and an image. I I feel huge sympathy. Right, time now to find out how Natalie and I fared in our Predictions League. Week one, you may recall, I was victorious, just, and uh, only because of Kennedy's penalty, uh, for which I'm very, very grateful. Obrigado, Kennedy. This weekend, Natalie went uh, for Arsenal to beat West Ham. I went for a draw, so that's 1-0. Natalie. Natalie plumped for Everton to win at Bournemouth. I again went for a draw, and I was correct this time, so it was 1-1. Dipping down into League Two, I thought Exeter, given their top of the table, would win at MK Dons on Saturday. But Natalie correctly predicted that Paul Tisdale's new club would beat his old club 2-1, Natalie. On to Sunday. Now, I thought Fulham would register their first win of the season against Burnley. Natalie went for the draw. Not enough faith in my man Djokanovic. So I was right again, 2-2. Now, we both had Real Madrid winning at Girona, so it came down to whether either of us could guess the correct scoreline. Natalie went for 2-1, I went for 3-1, it finished 4-1. I mean, this week, it's a draw between Natalie and I. Although, to be fair, I really should get the points for uh, the Real Madrid game, given that it was it was 3-1, really, until the end, and I was closer to the final 4-1 scoreline. But hey, what matters is that I'm in the lead, 1-0. It's all about these fine margins. Now, how about some quick hits? Liverpool win again. It's three wins, three clean sheets, three unchanged lineups. Allison. Is everything great? Or are you going to find things to nitpick? What's the opposite of nitpick? Sitting here with a big smile on my face, feeling very smug indeed. I'm not going to nitpick because everything's perfect. Liverpool have even hired 
for exclusive use, the world's best exponent of the long throw. They are leaving no stone unturned. They are turning into the perfect football club. And your namesake made some fine saves as well. Everton are held at Bournemouth. Choo-choo, two red cards. But the Richarlison one, I don't know. Are we going to referees again, Alison? Hear me out. I thought it was a little harsh. I realized two guys square off. One guy, it's not like he headbutted him. He put his head forward. And only one of them gets sent off. Should the referee just have sent them both off and just make a rule? I think mo- I, th- I think most most fans, most people who love football, would have really preferred both players to just get a yellow card for being silly. Or that, there was too, nothing yeah. violent going on, and I think I think this is a case of you know, like language, weird words get into the OED eventually because they're used often enough. In this case, there's enough will around the world of football for the laws to be adapted or some guidance to go out to say just putting your forehead down a tiny touch just to show tiny bit of irritation with someone glaring at you is a booking in the first instance if there's no violence it, it it's becoming minuscule the the point at which it could be interpreted as a as, as violent conduct it's ridiculous Watford beat Crystal Palace 2-1 and guess what they're also joint top of the table three wins from three Alison, are you going to show them some love, and especially my man Javi Gracia? Or will you complain about Ducouré's stamp and how Zaha was hard done by and poor old Roy? Watford do deserve love. I thought they fizzled out at the end of the season, lost with Charleston. I thought they'd struggle, and instead, uh, holding on to Ducouré seems to be much more important for them, and their team spirit is a star. But Zaha was muted for a lot of the game. Capoue should, I think, have been sent off for a violent, dangerous tackle on the back of his leg. It was horrible. And all that whole Harry the Hornet build-up, I think Roy might have stoked the wrong fire there (laughs) uh, because there was a bit of a sort of pantomime villain thing going on every time Zaha was touched or near the ball or touched anyone else. And if you'd rewound and that had been a red card, I think it would have been a very different outcome. Fulham, your local club, finally come together to bang four goals past Burnley. Now, again, you can either celebrate the many new faces at the cottage who are all finally coming together, or you can worry about how Burnley and Sean Dyche, last year so strong on the road, can give up four in one go. I'm so bored by what the Europa League does to teams when they try so hard to get there. I'm not going to even discuss that and instead say, yippee, because uh, Fulham... They were without a win. Uh, people were doubting that spending a hundred million quid that could be a, the wrong thing to do. And had you know, you got to integrate new faces slowly. Well, Slavisa Djokanovic is a manager who anyway rotates. He's always dropping players. <laughs> You're surprised he's dropped them. He'll rotate his keepers. He he just loves mixing things up. And so, in a sense, you could argue that someone who does that anyway can cope with an influx of new faces. And they have been playing increasingly better and uh, fully deserved their win. There could be some real stars of the Premier League at Craven Cottage this season. Gab, I have a question for you. You wrote about Paris Saint-Germain in today's game, but why haven't they been punished yet for violating financial fair play? Well, uh, I think we'll get a decision soon. Um, the violation or, or the breach, if it happened, was for the Neymar and Mbappe uh, deals and that accounting period only ended on June 30th, 2018. So under the old financial fair play method, 
they would have been audited or notified that they were being audited like in September, October, and then we would have had a decision in April and would only have been enforced from next season. Now the new one, they can basically be punished at any time. They just look at the present. And with this in mind, it's quite remarkable what they've done because they have a tiny squad. They have a bunch of, they have a bunch of, of 19 year olds. Um, you know, some of them are good, some of them not so much. And they've already raised something like 60 million in sales and hopefully they might even top the 100 million uh, mark this summer if they saw Gonzalo Guedes um, and Jesse, who have not been involved in going the preseason tour, very much for sale. They're kind of acting as if they're already being punished by being thrifty and whatever else. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out this year because there is very, very little depth beyond the starting 11. On the other hand, you can also look at it and say, hey, isn't it great? One of the byproducts of FFP is that all these kids are being given a chance to play. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my excellent guests, Alison Rod and the wonderfully shaven-headed Jonathan Northcroft. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone, too, for only £8 for eight weeks. That's eight quid for eight weeks. Quite the deal. Search The Times subscription for more information. Natalie will be back on Thursday with a look ahead to the Champions League season. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.